This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. Family. Today we're going to be talking about family. Not just our own families, Father Jeffrey, but family as in how does the word family, how does the concept of family work in the biblical imagination and how has that come into the new testament and how has that come into the life of the church and how should we understand that concept as orthodox christians so family that's our topic you know uh the, i think the best place to start here father is something like the people of israel right because the people of israel for for those of us who have read parts of the scriptures and know a bit of the story or maybe we've seen the ten commandments or one of these movies <laughs> Um, we know that the the Israelites are a group of people that kind of split up into tribes according to families, according to patriarchs' names and things like that. So maybe a good place to start is talking about kind of the role of family in the life of the Israelites and particularly how they were a special chosen people out of all the other nations. Like what's the connection between nationhood and then being a family for the people of Israelites. I hope that question makes sense. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, everything starts really um, in the scriptures with the the call of Abraham, right? Like Abram, as he was before he was renamed. And what's interesting there is there's this kind of duality about family as well as about nationhood. And I think that's what you're kind of uh, alluding to here. I mean, the, the Israelites are a nation, right? In fact, you know, the, the word in the Hebrew for nations, goyim, that we translate alternately as peoples, nations, Gentiles, you know, uh, Israel is one of the goyim, right? I mean, it, it, it is like the other nations in that it has nationhood about it. it. And and Abraham will have a family that is like other families, right? So there's there's that aspect of it. But in the call of, of Abram originally, when the Lord comes to him, this is Genesis chapter 12, right? He says, go from your country, you know, go from your land, your people, your, your, your nation, right? And your kindred, your family and your father's house and to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse and in all the families in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the kind of beginning of all things in terms of nation and family and God's purposes, right? So that in some respects, the, the response to division and chaos and mayhem and uh, disorder that is the Tower of Babel, right? And this, this kind of separation of, of the world and the peoples into different nations, the response of God isn't to say, well, I'll you know, scratch that, I'll start again, but it's to call one out of that. So the first thing to note here is Abraham is asked to leave his family, right? He's asked to leave his nation, his family, his people, his father's house. So there's this ambiguity, right? I mean, a lot of Christians will often say, oh, the Bible's all about family values and the, the family is upheld as, as the, the, the top and the main thing and the principal thing in our life and everything should revolve around the family. And if we have any politics, it should be about supporting families, etc. Well, the very first thing that happens in God's plan of salvation is that Abram is told to leave his family, right? To abandon his family, to start fresh. And it's from this family, one amongst all, one person amongst 
all the people, but one family that will be descended from him that will be a nation amongst all the nations. And they will have a special role. They'll have a special calling. This chosenness isn't about preference and, you know, favor to the detriment of all others, but for the blessing of all others, right? So that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed because they're called, Abram is called and his descendants to reflect God's love and glory and grace to the world and then to to mirror that back, you know, to, to God. So it's interesting, though, that it begins with a rejection of family in order to form a family in which all families, you know, will be blessed. So it's kind of all wrapped up in there in those very first words spoken to Abram by by Yahweh as he calls him out of, of the world to kind of to this purpose, this responsibility, and so forth. And I think that that ambiguity around family is what kind of runs right through the scriptures, much as we sometimes are tempted to say, well, you know, the Bible's all about supporting families. It's not, actually. It's about a certain kind and character of family that is ultimately an all-embracing, all-encompassing family where the, the kinds of, uh, you know, families that we, we maybe set out to create and, and to, to, to put over others to, to the detriment of others, those are, are set aside in, in a kind of more covenantal way of, of seeing family, which is what the Bible ultimately is all about. So if the Bible is about family values, it's about that, not about, you know, the, the nuclear family, the, the husband, the wife, the children separate from everyone else and, and trying to kind of support themselves over against others, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, it'll, be an, it'll be an interesting topic to discuss is the kind of family values that the scripture has, which I think we're going to get to. But, you know, one of the things that I am, you know, r- reading the scriptures, if you have this group that's separated out to be the special family, you know, Abraham's seed or Abraham's offspring or Abraham's family descendants, well, that means that there are some people in this world who are not that, right? There are some people who are not Abraham's family. They are outsiders. They are Gentiles. They are the nations. They are the others. And while that relationship is kind of neutral, it's, it's, it's not inherently aggressive or friendly. It's just a neutral kind of relationship between the people of Abraham, Abraham's seed, and everybody else in the world. Um, there can develop a little bit of, of rivalry, though, there can develop those antagonistic relationships. And I think you do see that in scriptures as well, don't you, Father Jeffrey? You know, um, you know, these maybe even in the Psalms, things like, you know, the people of Israel will be exalted above the Gentiles, right? All the Gentiles will come and shall worship, right? This idea that um, in the end, all the Gentiles will become sometimes even like subservient or will come and um join again, but this idea that it's through the people of Israel that that's going to happen. So I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on the relationship of Abraham's seed, the people of Israel, and their conceptions of what it meant to be outside of Abraham's seed, to be a Gentile, to be out there. Yeah. So I would return to that first promise again. Clearly, you know, the, the preference and, and selection, election, chosenness of Israel is about ultimately taking God's purposes forward, that all will eventually be part of that. So we, we find that promise given to Abraham. It's part of that Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and that 
that that's that stays there. I mean, that that's part of the story as as it unfolds, and the whole of the, the history of Israel then is how faithful or not they are to that vocation, right? And it's it, it it's only ever measured in terms of how separate, distinct, and different they are from the surrounding nations, right? So they they fail in their faithfulness when they they just sort of start to look like all the other nations, and that's everything from you know coveting a king like the other nations have a king. Or it's about, you know, making alliances with other powers around them because they feel I mean, this nation is not a very large one. It's not a very important one. And, you know, why didn't God actually choose Egypt or Assyria or Babylonia or whatever? These are the more powerful, you know, nations in, in, the, in the world, at, in the ancient Near East. So kings and rulers in Israel will be tempted to kind of throw their lot in with others, make alliances, marry strategically. And when the, the wives come, they bring their idols and they bring their, 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 their different gods. And so there's this lack of faith ultimately in the promise that was given to Abraham, which is you stay faithful, I will bless you. And not only that, all the nations will be blessed, you know, through you. So that's the, the story as it unfolds. And in the prophets, you get this, you know, kind of expectation that will one day God will resolve all of this. There will be a day of the Lord. There will be a day in which maybe God himself even will visit and return and will rule. And indeed, that will be the moment when all the nations, the other nations that were meant to be blessed by Israel's faithfulness, those nations will come and they too will acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God. They will acknowledge the God of Israel, the, the, the fulfillment of what the temple and earlier the tabernacle was meant to be, this, this kind of working model of heaven and earth coming together. That will, that will now spread and all of creation will be heaven and earth joined together. And deep, the Gentiles will acknowledge this. But you're right, there's different kinds of, of expectations around what that will look like, right? Whether the, the Gentiles are fully brought in, all the nations, you know, made to be full participants and partakers of that covenant family, or whether they're just there to be the, the witnesses <laughs> you know, to, to what they got so wrong all along. Now, I think the preponderance of those prophetic texts would head towards God intending something like he promised Abraham in the first place, that indeed there will be a blessing that is shared, right? Now, the question of whether Jew and Gentile will be still distinguishable in that day is the kind of ongoing one. This is something that still works itself out through the apostolic writings. And in, in it's something that St. Paul, for example, is struggling with, you know, in Romans where he's, you know, speaks about um, the election and chosenness of, of Israel. And he's wrestling with the fact that in the Christ event, in, in encountering God himself who has come incarnate in the flesh, who's died and, and now risen as a sign of the inauguration of, of the age to come, not all Israel has, has acknowledged this. So you get this kind of reverse thing that's happening, right? Remember, in the day of the Lord, you know, all the Gentiles will come and see that Israel was right in worshiping Yahweh. Now, St. Paul's dealing with the fact that there are Gentiles streaming in. That's what the prophets expected. That's what the covenant with Abraham, the promise to Abraham was all about. But Israel, not all Israel has acknowledged this. And so he's he's wrestling with that. You know, at the beginning of chapter nine, he says, I, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish myself 
that I were accursed and cut off for the sake of my own brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. So talking about that, the genealogical Israel, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from them, according to the flesh, according to genealogy comes the Messiah, the Christ, who is over all and God blessed, you know, forever. And he then goes on to say, it's not like God has failed in his promises, but he speaks about not all those descended from Israel are Israelites and not all of Abraham's children are his descendants. So he's going to be working out that in this breaking open, this, this kind of widening of God's covenant that was made with one person and his family and his descendants and the nation that was formed around that. Now that opens up and not by a different process, mind you, right? But by adoption now into the covenant, the Gentiles are being made shares of that. And they become also descendants of Abraham according to the spirit, not according, you know, to the flesh. But note, he said this of, of Israel in the first place, also adopted. No one got in there by their own, you know, uh, you know, genetics or by their own, you know, just by being born, right? That the very election of, of Abraham in the first place was by adoption. And indeed, Paul, you know, writes how that, that chosenness, you know, carries forward, right? You know, it's, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's, it's Jacob, not Esau, right? And then from that, you know, it's the family of David. And from the descendants of the family of David, there's one family. And from that one family, one young woman. And from that young woman, God becomes incarnate. So the chosenness isn't just like something written into the story once. It's an overall pattern, but that's not you know, to prefer one to the exclusion of the others. It's to prefer one each time for the inclusion ultimately of everybody so that all may be blessed. And that's how Paul's kind of working this through. And he has, he says that the promises to Israel are, are irrevocable, right? They, they will not be taken away. So there's a, a, a permanence to that, even though it looks for a time like Israel has, has rejected, you know, what God has done in and through Christ. So the Gentiles are now streaming in as the prophets expected, as God promised to Abraham. But the, the way that they're being joined is the same process of adoption into God's family that was the very chosenness in the first place. In fact, the chosenness all along, which was always counterintuitive and was always, you know, not was what was expected. But somehow that those promises went forward in the families descendant from Abraham in order that all families might be blessed as was promised in the first place. Yeah, and that's reflected in one of Paul's letters to the church in Galatia, uh, the churches in Galatia, uh, where he writes, you know, as as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. You know, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs mm. according to the promise. Right? We all we all stand the same. You know, we all stand to inherit the same from this promise, um, whether you're a man or woman, Jew or Greek or slave or free. Once you start noticing it, this word adoption just is everywhere, right? And it's, it's fascinating because, again, you know, we have this kind of naive sense of family values, right? And that, you know, and to some extent, that undermines even adoption, right? People think, well, you know, to have 
an offspring according to the flesh is far more important. Adoption is a kind of second best or whatever. Not so in the scriptures, right? God makes it very clear that his process of of choosing Israel, of of, of taking his promises and, and and purposes forward in Israel is an adoption, right? And this is a it's a calling to be an heir uh, and a full participant in in his plans, in his law, his righteousness, and so forth. And so we get to the New Testament again and again. You know, the the apostles like Paul will use this symbol, this, this metaphor, this image of adoption, and making it very clear that you know, this is by God's grace that we are, are brought into this family. And, and having been brought in, we are adopted as sons. Uh, now, you might say children, you know, to, to make it a little bit more inclusive, but the, the word in the Greek is sons, because in the, you know, ancient world, it was sons who were heirs, sons who, who, who were made full, uh, recipients of the legacy of the inheritance of, of what the, the father, you know, passes on. And so the, you know, it, it's important that if we do make that a little bit more gender inclusive, that we don't lose that sense that, yeah, it, these are the ones who inherit, right? So adopted as inheritors. And that's that image that, that, that is carried forward with adoption of, of heirs, heirs of God's glory, of his promises, of all that he has, the good things he has in store for us. And so that's what we are, are made. That's the family that we are brought into. That should be our, our kind of main focus and, and touchstone as Christians, not, as I say, retreating into um, worldly, fleshly, you know, genealogical families, you know, organized into nuclear units or whatever, and just kind of prioritizing them and their values, whatever those are, but seeing ourselves indeed as brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God, as was promised from the very, very beginning to Abraham. And that's the story that's been taken forward. And the whole of the Old Testament is about that. The whole of the New Testament is about that, how we have been adopted into God's family. We are brothers and sisters. You know, that that's the terminology that was used by the by the early Christians when they started gathering. They started calling each other brothers and sisters to the point that rumors started up in in the in Roman um Roman ideas of these weird secret Christian people that practice incest because they all call each other brother and sister, right? Um but you know, that's it seems to me that that's how we should identify ourselves when we're even in our own church communities as brother or sister. When we, when we belong to a church community, I think sometimes people even feel like, well, I pay my dues, therefore I'm part of this community, or I've signed on the dotted line and therefore I'm a part of this community. But I think, you know, a, perhaps even an atonement theory or a theory of salvation is the, the best way to think about your participation in a local church community is actually being adopted into the family of God, the family of Abraham, and being able to call the other people there brothers and sisters, right? And and then participating not only in the worshiping life of the church, but in the fellowship as well. The coffee hour, the meals, the the things that happen outside of just the worshiping life of the church. This is these are sort of family activities, aren't they, Father Jeffrey? Well, yeah, and it's we reduce it sometimes to just the kind of language we use in church and liturgy and so forth. And isn't that nice? You know, we we're, we call ourselves brothers and sisters in this service for this time in this ritual, but then, you know, well, I'll spend a couple of minutes drinking a cup of coffee with these people, but then be off to my own life. And usually that means 
to some extent to my own family, right? Who, who may or may not be believers, who may or may not share any of the, 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 the kind of tell us the purpose of, of life that, that we have and so forth. And it's just not supposed to be that way around, right? It, we sp- we're supposed to take that extremely seriously. I mean, St. Paul in, in Romans, it says, this, so then brothers and sisters, although in the Greek it's, it's brethren, but we're on with this gender inclusive language here. So then brothers and sisters, we are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Again, sons of God here, but children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. In that is encapsulated how we're to, meant to leave our li- lead our lives, right? That we are indeed made adopted children of God, right? To live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, that that means a certain way of life where we need to put to death the things of the flesh, the things of this world in order to live according to the life of the age to come. And for that, it's not just something we do for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. That has to be the totality of our lives. If we are not supporting our brothers and sisters, you know, beyond that, as you say, in fellowship, so that we learn about them and get to know them and, and have them as our main family members. And then throughout the week, if they are suffering, that we support them because we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are in fact called to, to labor and struggle and suffer in this world that we may be glorified with him, as St. Paul says, right? So that this is a, uh, this is the totality of our, our life, this being made children of God. And we either take it seriously, you know, or we don't. And, and one of the ways, sadly, that we don't take it seriously, as I said, this kind of perverted modern notion of what a Christian family is, that somehow it's just this perfect version of what our society's families are all about. Whereas it's not the family of God that we are made part of is the church, is the covenant people of Israel starts with Abraham and continues to this day. And we are children of Abraham. And when we die, as our funeral services have it, we are in the bosom of Abraham, right? It's all, it's familial language. It's, it's, the, it's the language of adoption, the language of brothers and sisters. And it, it, we need to take it seriously if we're to get our Christian life right, right? So it, everything fold, folds into this, even the way we talk sometimes about, you know, sin and repentance and everything. It's become highly individualistic, whereas actually it should be this language, as St. Paul has it, of living as children of God according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, and everything that that means in, in our relationships with, with one another and so forth. What matters not is our individual kind of take on that, but how we do that as a family, you know, together, which is why we have corporate worship, which is why we have corporate repentance, why, why we have the, the, the going through the ascetic life together and, and so forth. And not just as individuals who happen to affiliate themselves with an organization called the church, right? So this mm-hmm. is our family. This is our real life. This, and, and everything about that is intensely important. So let's talk about family values then, of particularly scriptural family values. So it seems to me th- throughout this discussion, you know, the 
the, the family values that the scriptures are concerned with are not really that much about the quote unquote nuclear family, which you mentioned before. It's about the community of believers who gather together and that being almost the primary familial place, the primary place of family is that community of believers. Like most of the references to family would be about that experience of family. And then there are some parts where Paul and Paul in particular will talk about how a husband and wife should be treating each other, how the children should be functioning within that. But those are actually quite small. You know, when when we talk about family values nowadays, it's usually only about that sort of nuclear family. And, And I'm talking about Christians talking about family values will often not even talk about the way that the scriptures talk about it, which is this larger cosmic um, union of of Jew and Gentile in, in, into this body of, of Christ. Um, that's that's just very fascinating how how we've gone that down that road, how, isn't it, Father Jeffrey? Well, well, yeah, and it's not in any way to, to denigrate things like marriage and so forth. But notice that every time they come up, they are made to be reflective images of. God's covenant love. And we have this even in our marriage service, right? We, we have a, a, a wedding service the, the, in the betrothal and the crowning, the sacrament of marriage in the Orthodox Church, which is replete with, you know, biblical, mostly scriptural Old Testament images of, of God's love, right? And we've got all these characters, the, the married, you know, figures fr- from, from the Old Covenant. But the, the point is that it's all about how they do or do not represent God's own faithfulness to his people, right? So, so marriage is the secondary thing, it, and it's meant to act as this image to God's love for Israel, Christ's love for the church. And every time it comes up, that's the way it's presented. And in fact, the image is extended because Israel's unfaithfulness is, is uh, represented often as the unfaithfulness of a marriage, right? Someone who hasn't been faithful to to their vows, to their promises, to their commitments, and so there is a place, you know, for for Christian marriage within the wider family that is the the principal family of ours, which is the church, right? It's it's not to be elevated above it, but it sits within it as an image of the the very love and faithfulness and fidelity of of God Himself towards us. So that's how that should be lived out. And that's what Ephesians 5 is all about, that we do indeed read at, at an Orthodox wedding. Um, but, but beyond that, you know, family values in the Bible are all about, you know, um, peacefulness, the shalom that God brings to a household, right? When things are properly ordered, it's about interdependence. It's about love. It's about being members of one another, as, as St. Paul says. Uh, these are the family values about forgiveness and about, you know, repentance, you know, towards one another. It's about honoring the, the elders, uh, you know, within the, the household. All of those things are indeed intensely important family values. It's not about separating oneself and, and kind of hiving off in this nuclear or, you know, organization, because what happens with that obviously is that people who are not in or called to the married life are then somehow made secondary, right? There's not like the, the Christian marriage within the overall family of God is the most elevated form of Christian life because we have monastics, we have single people, we have people who have maybe been married but are now widowed, right? Or or even divorced. So all of these forms of life are 
are are possible of being blessed, of possible of, of being grace bearing within the overall household of God, if we indeed adhere to the proper family values, you know, of of, of love for one another, of interdependence, of forgiveness, of of support, you know, for one another. Yes, of course, Christian marriage within that is a particular form that that is a mirror, an icon of God's love and of his covenant, right? And we call marriage a covenant as well. But but so too does monasticism offer a kind of mirror to that, right? That it has it has its own form of of covenant love, you know, within that. But but neither of them is as important as the adoption into the family in the first place. And I think that's what we want to recalibrate here and say that if we really properly take family in the Bible seriously, we are going to place our adoption as children of God, as co-heirs of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the thing that goes above all else. And it means that at times, you know, as as Jesus says in, in the Gospels, you know, you will need for the sake of the gospel to, in fact, and he puts it quite strongly, hate, you know, husband, wife, father, mother, children, in the sense that we've placed before all things the, the one true family of God, the gospel, the covenant that God has, has called all to share in, in fulfillment of that original call of Abraham. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.